are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Well, now, this word introvert, um, this is a word that Freud uh, took from Jung. And they've un- interpreted it uh, differently. For Jung, well, let me stop. For Freud, the uh, main drive of the psyche, I'm now just reducing it to the ABCs of this thing, is erotic. For F- Freud's uh, psychology is a psychology based on the erotic principle. Uh, for the first uh, heretic in the Freudian camp, namely Adler, the principal drive is not the erotic drive, but the drive to power and conquest and uh, uh, self-realization. For Adler, the field of erotics is itself a field of challenge, and so it's will to power and conquest there. So here we have two opposed psychologies, one of the erotic principle and the other of the power principle. And then, as Jung points out in his uh, basic uh, introductory work, the two essays on analytical psychology, uh, in, fr- in Jung's point, from Jung's point of view, these are the two drives that are working in everybody, and they work in opposition to each other. Uh, for Freud, here we have the will to uh, pleasure, and this is frustrated by social uh, prohibitions and so forth, so that the obstruction comes from outside. In Adler, we have the will to power, but it's our own impotence that renders us un- unable to achieve this. And again, it's I versus the world. But in Jung's view, right in the psyche itself, there is this contrariety of, uh, of urges, do you see? Power versus erotic. Now, the person who devotes himself to the power field is one who, for some reason or another, was made in his uh, youth to feel inferior. Uh, this is the Adlerian inferiority complex, and the person becomes Com, uh, particularly concerned to push through. Now, it may be a social inferiority, it may be a physical inferiority, it may just be that his family put him in a bad position, but this drive to show, your, show the way leads to suppressing the erotic in oneself. One suppresses one's desire for pleasure and so forth in order to achieve a kind of asceticism there. This is the introvert. The one always asking, how am I doing? He's thinking always of himself in this thing, and he doesn't let the siren call distract him. The one, however, who is open to the call of life, to the allure, to the pleasure, and forgets himself therein, is the extrovert, outward turned. Do you see? Now, you're going to be one or the other. Primarily, but then the opposite is the inferior attitude. When you meet with a frustration in your major motive, the other comes up. This is what Jung calls the enantiodromia. You have met with a frustration here. Well, you know what happens. Your voice changes, you're compulsive, you can't control yourself. Uh, Another personality takes over. The characteristic of the inferior posture when it comes forward is compulsiveness. It can't be controlled. And the only way you can get it under control is by letting it come through and get used to it and find out how to handle it. But if you swallow it back again, it's stuck again. Now, uh, the 
Jungian introvert is the frustrated Freudian extrovert. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, Freud sees the proper human mode, the normal human mode, as the extroverted mode. Mm -hmm. So that for him, introversion is a bad word. Because for the extrovert, the introversion is always the inferior function, the inferior mode. However, for a developed introvert, the extroversion is inferior. Do you see? You have two totally different characters here. And you have a different problem to handle there. there are the, the answers for Mr. A aren't the ones that are going to work for Mr. B. Now, there's still more involved in this, namely that not only do we have these two uh, intro-extras, <coughs> But we have what Jung calls the four functions to consider. And this is a terribly important thing in, Freud, in Jungian uh, psychology. Sense, intuition, thinking, and feeling. Uh, sense and intuition, sensation and intuition, are two modes of experiencing. Feeling and thinking are two modes of evaluating experience. Sensation is just what we get here, what the senses grab right here. Intuition is the immediate recognition of implications in the environment which are not immediately evident to the senses. Implications as to intention, as to potentialities, as to threats, or as to relationships. These are immediately intuited. Now, a person who is always intuiting May, is, is not paying attention to the sense possibilities. Mm -hmm. And a person who is lost in the world of sense, the great talent for the politician is intuition, the intuition of the possible. The great talent for pedagogy is intuition, the intuition of the possible in this student. The great talent for getting <coughs> married is the intuition of what this boy or girl is going to be a few years later. Uh, the one who, is, uh, who experiences the later shock is the one who just married the obvious present. So those are the, uh, the two modes of apprehending. Then the two modes of evaluating are thinking and feeling. Now, if you evaluate your life and base your life on thinking, on rational judgments all the time, what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, and all that, you are not developing the feeling judgments. But if you base your life on feeling judgments, what is rich, what is shallow, what is thin, what is, you may be, uh, what can I say, uh, offending the righteous <laughs> side. Uh, one will develop one or the other, and the other will be the inferior function. Now, all the inferior, all the inferior functions associate themselves with the inferior posture. Let's say if you're an extrovert in your inferior character, Aligned with that will be, let's say you are a sensation-thinking type, let's say the normal scientist, sensation-thinking is the science order, feeling and intuition are inferior. They will be associated with the extroversion and so forth. So great load comes up when the enantiodromia takes place. All of the rejected and undeveloped aspects of the psyche come up. These are what have to be caught and handled. Now you see, in mid-career, when you begin to fail, it's the enantiodromia that takes place. Your inferior functions come up. These compulsive things come up. And uh, you don't know why you do these things, but gosh, you do them. And everybody, and I wish I would 
pushed this way, well, you've got to learn how to handle it. Well, in terms of traditional Buddhism, to commit suicide in protest against anything is to put yourself back about 1,800 incarnations because you have identified yourself with something. The wise man is the one who is uh, indifferent to things. I mean, this, these aren't suicides of indifference. Uh, but the one who um, commits suicide uh, because he has now achieved and lets the body drop off and for one reason or other assumes this attitude, perhaps for instruction, uh, this is a totally different case. Uh, the very first report we have in European history of a yogi is of one who burned himself to death. Uh, Alexander the Great, when he pushed into India, 327 B.C., uh, was um, in the Indus area, the northern Indus area, and some of his young generals, all students of Socrates and Aristotle and so forth, heard that there was a school of philosophers just outside uh, the city of uh, Taxila, and they went out to visit this school of philosophers. And what they found were about eight naked old fellows seated on broiling hot rocks, uh, some of them standing with hands in air. And um, through about a chain of about eight interpreters, these young uh, Greeks with their flowing capes and uh, brilliant attitudes, um, got into conversation with these uh, yogis, and they said they wished to speak, to talk about philosophy. Well, the yogis said they wouldn't talk philosophy with anybody wearing boots and a cape. Take their clothes off, come out, sit down decently on a rock, kind of hot rock, and we'll be able to talk to you. <laughs> so uh, this uh, uh, was rather a blow to them. But one old fellow, um, consented to come to Alexander's table. And um, he became quite a fad in the Alexandrian uh, army complex. And uh, they called him Kalanos. And uh, they started back, you know, the army goes back into Persia. And when he left India and got into Persia, he had been, he received many gifts and all this kind of thing. He had them build a great pyre with all of his gifts hung about it. And he ascended the pyre, and sat in the lotus posture, and uh, with the elephants trumpeting as they circumambulated and the Greek army walking around, he had them touch a torch, and the last they saw was Kalanos going up in smoke. Um, this was a lesson in the indifference to all these things that the Greeks had, uh, had um, put their faith in. It was his final lesson, you might say, to Alexander. Alexander's former tutor, having been Aristotle, who was associated only with what the Indians call the realm of waking consciousness, with of Aristotelian logic. Now, when the Indian ideals went into China, China is an essentially politically oriented part of the world. All the philosophies in China ultimately end up uh, political. And there, Buddhism became associated with political contexts, and this burning became associated in China with the political acts. 
um, there is a Buddhist bodhisattva whose name means immobile in fire. And uh, you see him uh, in many of the Japanese temples. It's a figure seated holding a sword in hand, upright like this, in fire, in the yogi posture. And I remember that first photograph that was printed of the first uh, monk who burned himself. It was a beautiful photograph of this man uh, seated there. It was just like that image. He actually had identified himself with immobile and fire. And uh, there he sat. Well, there you are. Um, <laughs> this is the final uh, threshold problem of, of the one seeking release from ego. If you're seeking release from ego, you're seeking release. <laughs> And um, that frustrates you. In fact, I want out. Well, there's I. Um, Shankara uh, was a great um, apologian for Hinduism. <coughs> Buddhism had been the dominant religion in India from about the 4th century B.C., and there was then in the 5th century uh, a resurgence of Hinduism. And in the 9th, Shankara capped this. He, uh, he was like Aquinas, a summa contra gentiles. That's what he was really uh, handling here. He was arguing down the Buddhist and the Jain and the uh, deviant uh, Vedantic uh, ad, uh, uh, theories in order to uh, render his... Uh, Maya theory, really, the Nirdvanva of um, the Nantu doctrine of uh, Shankaracharya sees uh, the world as Maya, but that's only one, one of the possible Hinduisms. <laughs> I don't know what his answer would have been if you'd said, well now, isn't this egoism, you writing this, I think he would probably have said, no, I'm uh, a teacher, and I'm here teaching the doctrine. And uh, that could be a self-giving, you yeah. see. In fact, for a, a, an illuminated one to come in and teach is itself a sacrifice. That's the sacrifice that is represented in the bodhisattva ideal in, in Buddhism. Uh, the great bodhisattva, Avalakita Teshvara, who's called Kuan Yin in China. This being was on the point, this is a legend only, this is not a historical character, uh, on the point of uh, Parinirvana, that is to say of dropping the body forever, and uh, heard all the stones and trees, even clouds, set up a wail of grief. And he asked, uh, what is this? Why this cry? And they said, your very presence here in time and space as a manifestation of nirvanic uh, truth has given us the sense of nirvana and our participation in that. And with you gone, we shall lose that. So he renounced nirvana for himself in order to remain in the world as a manifestation. 
And he is indeed manifest in all of us insofar as we illuminate each other, which we are doing all the time, whether we know it or not. And so Avalokiteshvara is that uh, world-teaching principle that is um, informing the human universe. Now, he takes the form of the beings whom he teaches. He teaches grasshoppers in the form of grasshoppers. He teaches birds in the forms of birds. He teaches human beings in the forms of human beings. He teaches monks in the form of monks, laymen in the form of laymen, monsters in the form of monsters. It's a great, great image. And when you see him, his, uh, he's often shown with many, many heads facing in all directions, sometimes towering up and teaching all the planes. In his hands are eyes. These are like the wounds in the palm of Christ. Those eyes are the wounds because it is through those that the wound of beholding the suffering of the world comes to him, the anguish of beholding suffering. Um, from his fingertips, ambrosia drops into the underworld to feed the hungry ghosts and so forth. And even the souls in hells are illuminated and given nirvanic bliss in their pain by him. Because in the Buddhist uh, world, the pain and pleasure uh, are not uh, contrarieties. They come together. Life is painful pleasure, you know. And uh, so this bodhisattva in dispensing grief as well as pleasure is um, the lord of blessings. There's a very thrilling image of this bodhisattva figure that appears in certain Buddhist texts and it's best represented in a little anecdote in one of the uh, Indian uh, animal stories, actually. I'll, I'll just, just tell this little story to conclude this. There were four Brahmins who were um, suddenly found themselves destitute, poor, and they um, decided they would go out and get rich. So the four of them start out on a journey to get rich, and they go northward. And as they approach Tibet, they come uh, to a place where there's a great yogi whose name is Terra Joy. And uh, this is one of the names of Shiva in his horrendous aspect. And Terra uh, Joy takes them in, and uh, they tell him what they want. And he says, all right, I'll give you four quills. And you just go on north, and wherever a quill drops, there the owner of the quill will find his wealth. So the first quill drops, and the owner found the soil all copper. He said, oh, I'll stay here. This is my wealth. Stay with me. No, I said the others would go on. The second one, his quill dropped, and it was silver. The third, it was gold. So the third says to the fourth, who's still with him, uh, come on, this is, this is great. Uh, no, says he, don't you see? Copper, silver, gold, imagine. So he starts forth for the next. And he finds himself in the desert. And the sun's beating down. And he's all beaten up. And he can hardly live. And then in the distance, in the midst of this desert world in which he's been crawling around for days, he sees a solitary figure on a platform that is turning. This figure standing, 
still there with blood dripping down his body from a great wheel that's on his head revolving with knife cuts going around his head. And the voyager comes to this figure and he says, what is this? It's on his head. The other one thanks him, you've released me. Now he's there, turning around. And he says, how can you bear it? And the other says, you'll bear it all right. He says, uh, how do you uh, eat? Uh, you won't have to eat. Uh, how long am I going to be here? Well, says the other, uh, who's king in the world now? And he names a king. This man says, Rama was king when I came here. This puts it thousands of years back. And he said, how will I be released? You'll be released when someone holding a quill in his hand arrives and asks, what is this? <laughs> now that figure is there all the time. That's the Bodhisattva bearing the pain of the world. He has the eyes in his hand, the crown of thorns, the same figure. Um, from this side, that looks like pain. But we know that from the other side, it is not. This, this Terra Joy is the man's name. And uh, this is the Bodhisattva who bears the pain of the world. It's, it's a vivid, marvelous image of what, what life uh, what has to be affirmed. The first thing I spoke of, you know, the monstrous nature of life has to be affirmed. And if it's affirmed, that's the monstrous nature of life.